0: welcome to the hot stove society show on cairo radio i'm tom douglas owner of several of seattle's uh, fine joints including the serious takeout in ballard 14th and 52nd northwest uh serious pie downtown in our new digs at the old dahlia location and the dahlia bakery is finally open uh, four times the size it used to be with a little bit of indoor seating and our morning breakfast sandwiches are the rage right now chef terry they are um, we're selling about 150 a day and it's Crushing us—it's <laughs> absolutely crushing us in an awesome way. Hey, so. you,
1: I miss those; they're, yeah. they're fantastic. yeah So, Ooh.
0: Uh, anyway, that's and who I'm- I am, and you can come down and see me anytime. Shucking oysters down there on the sidewalk in front of Sea Town. I'm usually uh, down there Saturdays and Sundays doing that job. I'm going to be there this afternoon too. So, uh, what's up, chef in the chapeau?
1: I'm um, Thierry Roudier, the chef in a hat in uh, Madison Valley, a honor of Luke. Um, By the way, Luke will be down by Saturday, September, um, August 28th. Sorry. Uh, That's our last day of service. So if you want a last chance to get into Luke, this is now the time to do it. You've got about a month and a half left. So let's do it. Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 on. Patio dining, indoor dining, we have the all.
0: Hey, make sure you put me down for a four-top somewhere in there, chef, at the end. Okay. So, so I can come give you a kiss on the cheek. Are you going to be around or are you still quarantining?
1: Oh, yes. I, I, will, I will be around the last day, All right. for
0: sure. I want to give you a peck on the cheek.
1: And by the way, Tom, people keep asking me, so when is Tom is Tom going to reopen the palace? I know. So I'm, I'm going to do it live on the radio and put you on the spot. Are you reopening the palace? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, we'd like to. We're interviewing uh, chef and GM teams right now, but it's just it, I can't put together a crew. Well, uh, we have ads out for 150 open positions and I'm I'm getting uh, responses uh, one and two at a time. So uh, we're just going to have to take it as it goes. And if you'd like to send your Luke team over to open the Palace Kitchen, that would be awesome. Good idea.
1: Fabulous idea. Fabulous.
0: All right. Today we're going to talk about green beans and how we love to eat them. Uh, we are peak season green beans right now. Matter of fact, it's so far ahead over in eastern Washington. We're going to have cantaloupes next week, which is typically in August beginning for cantaloupe season, but uh, they love the heat, and they are rocking and rolling in the fields of Prosser Farm. We, uh, we're going to meet Ray Williams, Managing Director of Black Farmers Collective, to talk about their gardens. Brendan McGill, our old pal, is going to come over from Bainbridge Island and share his new uh, Junebug kombucha and talk about his other projects. Uh, Confi. Chef, are you going to give us a tutorial on Confi?
1: Well, I, I, I tell you what I know.
0: You'll Get tell enough. us what <laughs> I know. Good, because I have some thoughts on it, too, and I'm Uh, sometimes as an an american chef you get introduced to like a i'll call it a foreign product because it's a french technique and then you start to run with it and you think that you know all about it but you don't really know the roots you don't know maybe the traditional way of having it. you just know what you've had and and how you've uh, gone down the process to make it and lastly we're going to play our food for thought rub with love tasty trivia challenge uh, and the question's going to be mighty hard today. Pamela has pre-warned me and, and, that...
1: And who's the contender today?
0: Uh, I don't know. It's a surprise. Do you it, know, Pamela? It's Sean, our oh. talented audiovisual <laughs> technician. Oh, we got this, chef. Oh man, <laughs> We're going to bury this guy. Okay, let's get and into like our taste of the week. I, I, and I like.
1: Sorry, I like the I like the beard and the mustache he's growing, too. It's yeah, he's like a like handsome a, devil, that guy. Very serious and manly.
0: Yeah, very. he's a handsome guy, and he's intending on sneaking up on us, and I don't believe for a second that he hasn't conspired with our producer, Miss <laughs> Pamela, to make the questions that he receives easier.
2: I offered to let him read them ahead of time, and he said he would not because he doesn't
0: cheat in life. Wow, no. I'm, very impressive. Yeah, Boy Scout. What a nice young man. <laughs> Beard or both otherwise. Tom and I are like. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's keep going here. My taste of the week. It was last night. I was teaching a grilling class. You know, Hot Stove uh, has expanded its offerings both here at the school, which we're doing some live events now but also we're doing outdoor events out at our our warehouse out at 52nd and 14th Northwest in Ballard. And so last night was our third in a series of grilling classes. First two were uh, steaks and grades of meat and things of that sort and how to get your best char, your best crust, and wood versus cast iron. Last night was kind of delving out into other areas of salmon and lamb and chicken and uh, vegetable grilling, both uh, in cast iron and on the hot grill. So, Chef, I, uh, we did uh, – Jackie sent over some carrots from Prosser Farm. We gave those a nice sear, a char, caramelization kind of on medium heat and big cast iron pans. And then we took the tops, the tender tips, not the stalks. Not, you know, when a carrot – when you see a carrot, it's got the, the carrot and then the green coming out the top, and then it's got a, a, brushy, a bushy kind of top-top. The so fronds. we took that, yeah, you the, get frond. stuck yeah, in the fronds. Yeah, good call. So we took the fronds and we mixed those with, uh, in a classic kind of pesto version with uh, roasted pistachios, garlic, lemon juice, a little Tabasco, and those kind of bitter fronds from the carrot tops. And because we had slow roasted and caramelized the carrots to beautiful sweetness, the little bitter carrot top pesto, yeah. mm, what a nice combination. Finished with some pickled red onions. Uh, very, very tasty. That's my taste of the week. A, so it's a good way to utilize more of what you're paying for at the grocery store. What's your taste of the week, Chef? Yeah,
1: my taste of the week. I went to uh, I went to uh, Shaw Island and on the way back through the Skagit Valley, stopped at a stand and bought half a flat of um, blackberry, blueberry, raspberry, and strawberries. All local, perfectly ripe, in season, nice and beautiful. And uh came home and started some jam. I did a blackberry, blueberry jam, and a strawberry, raspberry jam. Two combos, uh, two different jams, and uh, just sugar, and then lemon juice. Mm. Two lemon juice in the whole batch of each of the jam. And wait, wait, wait. wait what do you mean, of,
0: two lemon juice? What does that mean?
1: Two two juice of a lemon. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, the juice of two lemons, I should say. Okay. Here we go. Perfect right. English. <laughs> <laughs> Two lemon juice. Yes. Um, And uh, that was it. And then cook it. So left it overnight on the counter and then cooked it yesterday for maybe two hours. You know, it took took about two hours, medium heat. And uh, the jam is ready to go into the jars and ready to be canned. Nice. And you, sir, will be a recipient.
0: I like that. Is that my Christmas present that you're making right here in July?
1: Uh, I'm not going to say when I give it to you. I'm just saying I'm going to give it to you. You know, my birthday's
0: in August, and I love jams, just so you know. I'm I'm aware. Yeah.
1: Your your birthday's coming up another year, sir.
0: Yeah. You know, um, (laughs) uh, I think 50% of my meals right now, Jackie has stocked our freezer full of sourdough bread that I sliced and put in the freezer so I can just pop it in the toaster. And I think 50% of our freezer space is that excess bread. So I've been eating a lot of... Really nicely hard toasted sourdough with uh, cherry jam that she made from the Prosser Farm. And my favorite uh, taste uh, from a few months ago, the CB Nuts Sea Salt Peanut Butter, which is uh, on your grocery shelves. And I have no interest, in, no financial interest or gain in if you buy one. But peanut I think butter. it's really good. <laughs> okay, up next, let's delicious. talk uh, green beans right here on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society radio show, ninety-seven three FM. It's time for green beans in your garden. Uh, I know that our farm in Prosser is teeming with green beans right now. Looking forward to them in all of their glory. Chef in the Chapeau has joined me. I'm Tom Douglas.
1: And I'm Terry the chef in the hat.
0: And, uh, Chef, how far, are, do you have any green beans in your home garden?
1: We have picked about a good handful of green beans for more. Uh, we, we grow our Ricover bush beans. Yes. And we've picked about a handful so far and. Uh, I must say that this year alone, I've had more Salad Niswas, or I should say versions of Salad Niswas more than ever, because I'm not actually putting potatoes in it, Mm -hmm. so that's not a true Salad Niswas. But a version of that, without the potatoes, um, having some good uh, St. Jude tuna and um, some hard duck boiled egg, and um, using green beans, obviously, haricot but I must tell you that uh, remember the shark garden we had the lady from the shark garden mm-hmm. in um,
0: Down in, Burien. in Burien. yeah
1: yeah, she uh, sent me some black and yellow beans that the uh, tram or manager picked up over there, and I tell you those black they' are black they look like just like haricot they're thin mm-hmm. except they're black mm-hmm. they're picked at the right time, and when you boil them, when you poach them or boil them, they become they become green, just like a green beans yeah, but they like- were. Absolutely sweet. Fantastic. And this is when you know that this is when you eat green beans. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the year, you buy those green beans that are coming in a plastic bag and that have nothing to do in flavor, That nothing recognizing to that.
0: Right. They do. The ones you in know, the bag man. tend to have a little green bean snap to them, but they don't have the flavor right. at all. You're absolutely Correct. right.
3: So.
1: Correct. They have no So what's bone? your you favorite know, way
0: are... to cook them? If somebody uh, brings you over, your neighbor brings you over a big bag of green beans that they just picked Do they have too many and uh, you want to do something with them in my opinion like I'm a big person about stocking my freezer with the summer vegetables like right Mm -hmm. now I have uh, three quarts of shuck peas I can't wait to eat those later in the season but green beans don't freeze all that well they get a little funny in texture when they when you freeze green beans even if you do them in like a a soup or something like that so let's eat them fresh what are you going to do when somebody hands you a nice bag of green beans first two things
1: so the first two things is, again, I'm going to go back to the same idea of what I eat. Tuna, you know, people don't eat enough tuna. Whether it's raw, uh, fresh tuna or in a can, I think it's a good a good salad to make with green beans, hard boiled egg, olives, and tuna. Okay. And then a the beautiful base of homegrown lettuces. Oh, man, the lemon olive oil dressing on yeah. top of that. Fresh herbs so- everywhere, a little lovage, yeah. a little... Uh, uh lovage and any size up and basil put are, that on top and you're home
0: well yeah that you've already nice. done that once today chef so i need a second one a new idea a
1: lovely okay, now the next idea roasted in the oven with almond toasted almond okay oh my god it is so delicious a squeeze of lemon at the end and you have this gorgeous plate of green beans on your hand okay talk but us through it do we
0: have are you uh, putting them in a saute pan and then putting them in the oven
1: No, you put them in a bowl, toss them with olive oil, a little bit of salt and pepper, throw them on a sheet pan, put them in the oven at 400 degrees, let them roast. It takes five, eight minutes minutes, max. Yeah, Yeah. and then you take them out. They're going to stay tenderized. They're going to keep cooking a little bit. And then you take that and you toasted some almond, thin almond sliced. You toast that, put them on top of the green beans, toss them together, and a squeeze of lemon juice right on top of that. And you've got this marvelous little plate of green beans to go as a side dish or even a main course. If you don't, if you're not too hungry, if you cracked a poached egg right on top of that, oh, you got a marvelous salad on your hand. So
0: now if you wanted to, you could take that very same saute pan full of beans. You could put a tablespoon or three of vermouth or water or whatever, but not very much, right? And then you right? put a lid yeah. on that pan and you put them on low over the heat over on your stove right and right. you slowly right. steam them in their own juices you should end up at the at the end of when you're cooking the green beans with almost as much liquid in the pan as you started with right the worst Correct. thing you could do is take your green beans freshly picked all prepped de-stemmed only take the stem off don't take that little pointy end of the other off that's wasteful And then if you put those then into a big pot of of boiling water and then drain it off, guess what you're throwing down the sink there? You're throwing away all the The vitamins. All Your water's green. If you look at it, it's green. That's coming right out of the flavor. You've just washed your carrots in in a hot boiling water and ruined half of the flavor of them. So don't be a a knucklehead, right? Just put them in a pan. Put a couple tablespoons of water or wine. Put a lid on and go low or else you'll boil away and burn your beans, but go low and just let them gently steam in their own juices, in their own jackets, all right? And then you have... And
1: and also, if they're raw and thin, you just dice them and put them in a salad. They're really good raw. I mean, they they, you know, when they're... I'm not talking about big green beans. I'm talking about thin, arric over Yeah. If you pick them at the right time in your backyard or you go to a farmer and they pick them at the right time, they will be totally tender, sweet, you dice them and put them in your salad, and it will be a nice textural flavor item in your salad.
0: Yeah, it adds crunch. Adds crunch to any sort of salad. Yeah. Now, what about, uh, you know, a big favorite in the American culture is the green bean casserole. And Campbell's Soup made mm-hmm. it famous because you take the green beans, and you probably take frozen cut green beans. But uh, what's, what would be a modern version of the green bean casserole? So the classic one, I will say, is, gr- you know, frozen green beans with cream of mushroom soup, and maybe some crispy onion fries on top, right? So what would be a modern version of that, Chef? How would you make a green bean casserole that you would be proud of?
1: I would use a wok, and I would stir fry my my green beans, like, just a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I would throw in all kinds of different spices on that. I could do chili crisp, you know, the famous Mm -hmm. chili crisp we always talk about. You know, you'd use that. Maybe toasted almond as well, because that would be a nice crunch to add to that and a good texture. And... You know, you would have a nice plate of green beans on the side, but um and then the fried fried shallots, you know, you could have fried I love shallots on top that. Would, yeah. would do your that would do your casserole, you know, kind of ideal. But I tell you, I've had I've had green bean casserole once and I thought that was disgusting. <laughs> I'm just like what a way to kill a green bean, man. I'm like
0: Well, I do think there's some value kill- in creamed vegetables. Like like for me, when I'm right. making creamed corn, for example, I'll take the corn off the cob Right? And I'll boil the cobs in a li- little bit of cream to get that essence of corn out of it. And then I'll reduce that cream, and then I'll add my thyme to that and just pour it over my corn. And basically, right. with corn off the cob, it takes 30 seconds to a minute to cook. Right, uh, yeah. All you had to do is yeah. almost just reheat that cream so it, it comes to a simmer and turn it off and get it out, and you've got cream corn. And yeah. so uh, exactly. those are ways to do things like your classic old casseroles, your preservative-laden... Um, bought at the commercial store casseroles into a more of a luscious home style yeah the delicious uh, version
1: and again if you're making it home just do some sauteed mushroom add your green beans diced cuts whatever you can cut them in small pieces add them to it towards the end of your sauteing your mushroom add a little bit of liquid like you were saying earlier just drop a little maybe a little vermouth on the bottom and then Cover that and let it cook for a minute, and you'll have a wonderful mushroom and haricot casserole.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it'll taste. It'll impress your friends and neighbors of how what a darling cook you are, taking such a classic recipe and making it better. They'll want the recipe. That's always when you know you've done something (laughs) right. They want the recipe. (laughs) Up next, Ray Williams here is here. He's the managing director of the Black Farmers Collective, and he's going to tell us about what's going on locally. Uh, Especially, uh, our first segment is going to be on the. uh, Yes Farm, west of Yesler, lease least from the Department of Transportation. How about that? Lease land in the Department of Transportation and grow green beans. When we come back, it's Tom and Terry awesome. in the kitchen on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. We're happy to be here. Thank you for being here every week with us, Saturdays and Sundays. We appreciate it. And if you can't get to us live, you can get to us Friday morning when we're taping on Facebook Live, or you can uh, listen in on a podcast sometime uh, in the future. So that's always a good thing to do. Uh, we have invited the Yes Farm uh, here to join us today to talk about uh, the Black Farmers Collective. Pamela, how did you find out about this group, and uh, what's your passion?
2: You know that we love The Chew from Beecher's Foundation where they publish all articles about food. And Seattle Met did a great interview with Ray uh, that I read and then dug into their website and found their vision statement that went right to my heart. So the the line that I loved is, Our vision is based in the need for a place for African-American leadership on the land, the Kwanzaa principle of cooperative economics and we want to learn more and how that turns
0: into vegetables (laughs) well that takes us to ray williams he's the executive director and uh
3: tell us ray about the about the farm about your process and uh, what the plans are for it uh well thank you tom and terry um black farmers collective uh, is a group of um urban food system folks from farmers to chefs to food distributors um, that wanted to get together and try to create a, a A black-led food system where we were able to give young uh, folks an opportunity to get into the system. So um, we've got a couple of projects. One is Yes Farm uh, that was discussed. Uh, We're farming the freeway right away, and Yesler. (laughs) That's
2: That's incredible.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's quite a uh, it's quite a journey. Um, It uh, a lot of. uh, um, a lot of things going on over at Yesler there and and so we we have uh volunteer days Tuesday and Saturdays uh we're doing uh, uh education spaces and then of course we're we're growing food um and then the other spot we have is we're leasing 4 acres of land actually in Redmond from King County and Masra here is the farm manager out there. We're lucky enough to get him to to try to develop that. Yay, Masra! So, uh, so Yay, those. Mossra. This is really our vision: is to try to, um, you know, be in a very inclusive organization, but have a space for Black leadership on the land. Really is where we're at. Yet. So before we get into
0: the farming aspect, and I think we'll probably deal with that mostly in the next segment. But let's talk about the need for this and how you're going to achieve your goals. And uh, Pamela. I know we're all, we we had the, uh, Terry, what was the name of the farm that, in Burien that we had on a couple of weeks ago? Park, the,
1: shark the Shark Garden. The Shark
0: Garden, uh, similar in nature, BIPOC kind of representative. Uh, and kids in need. Kids in need and uh, all sorts of things. Um, tell us about the need for this right now. Because I know Masara from when he used to work in our catering department and was always dreaming of his own farm. But it's hard to get there. And you said you're leasing the land, but, you know, it's hard to get these things to happen through government red tape. How did you do all of this?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, it's been quite a journey. Professionally, I was a science teacher and ended up teaching nutrition. And I realized that a lot of our health problems uh, come from what we're eating, right? And so Mm -hmm. if we can uh, eat better, prepare food better. um, And then I thought, well, one of the best things you, you can do for yourself is to actually grow a little of your own food. The mental and physical health aspects of growing that. So it started with community gardens, but then it expanded to, well, thinking larger in terms of the food system. So Mm -hmm. how can we grow more of our own food and and help and participate in economic development? So there was an opportunity to... um, uh, we answered an RFP from Seattle Housing Authority and Department of Transportation for the Yes or Terrace redevelopment to, to farm the freeway right away. Huh. And so that's how Yes Farm started. Um, and it took a, a lot of time and a lot of red tape. But luckily, Seattle Housing Authority was doing the red tape with WashDOT, So, mm-hmm. you know, we were able to make that happen. And after about a year there, um, gaining some momentum, um, putting together a, a young board uh, of directors for Black Farmers Collective, it really became apparent that um, acquisition of land, right, more land to grow more food. And so um, I'd been working with some folks uh, with the county, and this lease came up, and we were able to get it. You Isn't know, that, per- awesome. does that And I think our, our next step, honestly, is to take a look at, well, where are some farms that might be for sale? And how can we actually uh, buy some land? Because I think if you're able to have some ownership, you're not limited by the you know parameters of the folks that you're leasing from, and you can really get um, really get creative with what's going on and establish a legacy. Because essentially, you could be thrown off. You know, after a five-year lease, you could just say,
0: "Okay, you're done." And so that's that's harsh when you've put so much effort into creating great soil and.
3: And that kind of work that has to be done exactly exactly, and part of the uh, the county 's idea is to try to produce more farmers and more farmers of color you know we 're running out of farmers as they 're aging out, so right. if we can um, uh, create a space now we 're hoping that we 'll be able to stay a long time but again you 're actually you 're absolutely right if we can do that, and we 're you know farmland uh, in the greater Seattle areas is, is pretty dear right now, and so we would certainly be looking for some financial support in terms of getting it i don't think anyone can really buy a piece of land now and make enough money growing vegetables right but if you create community and you have education and you have have a system to support those actual farmers and then a space maybe for value added to to be able to sell some of that food and and uh, you know do what you do right? right which is create wonderful dishes out of this fresh food that we're we're trying to grow
0: Let's talk about that for a minute because you mentioned it in your your first part of the conversation. Uh, Terry and I both know from Food Lifeline activities uh, we've been on the boards there on and off for many, many, many years. And it wasn't just five years ago we got our first uh, ability to, uh, like for diabetes, to have the uh, doctor recommendation of a diet-based solution to your problem compared to a drug-based solution to your problem. And you talked about a little bit about how farming, just working with the earth, is helpful in its own way. Can do you know more about that? Is there, is there a real science to that?
3: Well, there really is. There's quite a science to actually um, connecting folks with nature, mm-hmm. and you don't ha- doesn't have to be a hike in the woods. It can actually be getting you know touching the ground. I think, and so um, reducing stress, um, which we have a lot of in this modern life, right. Um, being more connected to life, understanding where you fit into this cycle of life, you know, really gives you a, a, a I think, and of course I'm a former science teacher, so I'm, mm. I'm biased in this respect, but I think it really gives you a grounding of where you are and, and how, to, how to take a look at what your problems are and try to help s- solve them.
0: I, I could see, I know Pamela comes, when she comes to work and she's been gardening all morning. She's a different person. <laughs> you, are, you really are. You have a joyful quality. Not that you're not always joyful, but you love it. Yeah,
2: and I. But to continue with what Ray's saying, the nutritionist that we use on the show a lot, uh, her mantra is "You are what you eat," and so the connection um, between growing it and then preparing it and the
3: care you take is profound. The effect that it has on people. You you know it really does, and I'm I'm. Was thinking about what I might try to share here in terms of food, and I think one of the things that that this has allowed me to do is grow my own collard greens, and my wife uses her recipe from her family in Alabama, cook them down, um, well maybe some smoked turkey instead of the ham hocks, right? But it's it's quite this rich uh, flavor, but uh, well-cooked, I just tend to rinse them really well, uh, roll them up, slice them, and then do a little saute with some spices. Right. And you can just have that fresh. Um, you don't have to add all that animal fat. You can you know, use some vegetable oil. And it's a great way to to change a traditional um, fresh food. And when they're fresh, um, they're a lot, what, softer,
0: yeah, uh, easier
3: yeah. to chew.
0: And masa... Uh, <laughs> I just called you Mas. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's got you're corn the, on the mind. You're in I, the food world. I, I know. Masara uh, knows, uh, at least from working with us, I would think that, and Terry uh, knows that those spring collards, right, are very different than the September or August collards, which are heavier and spicier. And, and the spring collards are like spinach almost. You can just you can cook them in a, in a heartbeat. And, mm-hmm. you know, people don't realize that. Sure. Uh, do you have a different uh, time when you pick your collards? Uh
4: no no I guess yeah I, I definitely concur on the spring collards though I've definitely tried to do the slow cooking as Ray mentioned on some spring collards and they honestly just turned out a bit mushy yeah but um yeah we have collards right now and they're growing pretty big so I think there'll be a, ni- a nice balance between the spring and the and the fall
0: so we only have a minute in this particular segment we'll come back and talk about the farm vegetables and the food and the process but um, this is particularly the Black Garden Collective right so Black Farmers Collective. Black Farmers Collective so. Um, are you feeling like you're
3: making a difference? Are you getting participation? Are there, uh... you know, I think we are. We're really getting a lot of participation. Um, yes, Farm is right in the center of the city, so we are able to engage with uh, organizations that do education. You know, with with students. In fact, actually, Saturday there's a group of students, um, most of them that live in Yeser Terrace, that are part of a educational enrichment program. That are come. They're going to come, de- gonna come down. Um, their teacher's been down doing some prep. To do that, we we are also able to offer art education. We're doing a mural on our um, greenhouse, mm-hmm. so we're able to bring youth down um, as as part of that. The artist um, Simone, is bringing them down, um, and then we've got um, lots of opportunities for volunteers uh, to come out and, and help grow, pick, and uh, and do things there. All right. Well, we're going to come back and talk more about the actual gardening and the
0: food that you're picking and how it's being put into. Uh maybe ethnic dishes that are important to certain cultures, and uh, move on from there with Masra. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show 97.3 FM. We're back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen here on uh, 4th and Virginia in downtown Seattle. Uh, Ray Williams here of the Black Farmers Collective. He's also brought a young Masra who used to work with us. We always dreamed in our kitchens of being a farmer. Actually, you went to Prosser and hung out on our farm with my wife for a little bit, didn't you? My wife and Dev? I did, yeah. That was such a great time to see all the different crops,
4: especially from see the eastern Washington flavor, from different from the western Washington. It's
0: so different. Yeah. Uh, that We were just discussing in the break um, earlier that we lost all of our tomato sets and everything oh, with 115-degree no. heat for three days straight. Yikes. The plants just kind of shut themselves down in yeah. order to preserve themselves, and so... Uh, You have to wait now for a whole new flower set on some of these things. Uh, Masra, you're kind of on the dirt side of the Black Farmers Collective. Uh, I think, Ray, you've explained well about the thought behind the process and stuff. But uh, tell me about your job and uh, how you choose the vegetables that you grow. And does it fit a certain culture's cuisine? Uh, Because I know sometimes in the food banking business, we're always trying to load the food banks that are in White Center differently, maybe that are in... Uh, North Seattle or something, because it's yeah. different clientele, right? So, definitely, definitely, for yeah. sure, yeah. So I guess a little background, yeah, me, um, I'm the farm
4: manager at our Small Axe Farm, which is our a new site uh, up in the Woodenville Redmond area, and it's more larger scale than Yes Farm and in the community gardens that the Black Farmers Collective has been working on. We're about on a four-acre plot, and, and this year we're just doing uh, about under just under one acre in production. Um, but, yeah, for the vegetables we have right now, I guess my thinking behind it, because uh, this is my first year far- first year farming, and um, I wanted to keep it relatively simple, so I kept it with relatively easy to grow varieties and nothing too nothing too um, exotic. Um, yeah, with simple hybrids and simple open open pollinated varieties that I just got from Johnny's Seed Bank. But um, we have a, we have a good amount of collards. Collard, collards is the one that comes to mind just for serving the black community mm-hmm. um, in Seattle, and yeah. But for this first year, we're keeping it rel- relatively simple and easy to approach vegetables for for me on the growing side, and I guess for also for the for the consumer side uh-huh. as well.
0: And you're you've always expressed interest in becoming a farmer yourself, and yep. I don't know if that's still in your plans or if it's part of the process. Maybe you're going to become a, a farm professor like Ray. Uh, who knows? <laughs> but. Uh, uh, what are you loving about farming and what would you tell people that farming gifts to your soul
4: definitely uh for me i just i love the work um when i first founded farming early early on it was just that was what drew me to it um the work of working uh, being outside and really contributing to something meaningful um i know in in my soul it says yeah like i'm i'm working hard and i'm producing someone something for someone that's gonna definitely gonna eat it and feel uh feel Nuri- good about it. Nourish. Yeah, that's what I was looking for.
0: <laughs> Chef Terry.
1: Yes. So, Ray, you were mentioning earlier that you change a little bit of the recipe than your wife does with colored. Are you providing uh, the people you're selling those colored green to with a different recipe or something more up to date and a bit healthier?
3: Well, you know, that's a great, great question. We actually have our first farmer's market um, Saturday on the Dell Ridge market. Down there in Mosser will be bringing vegetables, and it's it's in our plan to add some some recipes to this to try to do that. I think we're, you know, this spring we spent so much time growing food and getting prepped that we're not we're not quite there yet. But uh, a lot of folks, you know, like to see some recipes in the bags, and I and I realize that you know sometimes we give away food bags and people aren't really familiar with how to cook the mm-hmm. cook the food, so that then is a waste. And so, how do you then really add that? I think some. Right. Some simple ways to cook uh, a variety of vegetables, um, you know. And I learned a bit this morning listening to your show earlier. So we're going to be sharing some of that. Good. Oh,
0: the green beans. <laughs> the green beans. Yeah. Green beans. So, Masur, what's next on your list of uh, vegetables to get into the ground? If you had a you've got a season under your belt. Let's say, and next year you're getting started on maybe two of the four acres. Do you have a. What's your plan? Definitely. Um, I think, uh... and I will just say. And I, the, my point behind that is gardening doesn't start when you pop a seed in, right? No. Gardening starts. You have to start planning a year in advance. So yep. how you're going to rotate your crops and all that kind of. That's why I asked that question. For sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah,
4: no, it's it's all on the crop plan. It's all yeah. it's all on paper first. Um, I think yeah, we're just. I'm going to look into this is the this is the first year trial year for me. So yeah, um, I'm just trying to figure things out on getting the vegetables in the ground, but. Right now, I, I'm thinking about more open pollinated, more heirloom varieties. Because um, yeah, as I mentioned before, this year I kept it relatively simple with just mm-hmm. easy, easy to easy to select seeds from this from the seed companies. What's
2: been the um, most proficient and what are you getting the best yield out of? Uh, I'd definitely say
4: our brassica block, or kale, our collards, our cabbage. Um, those are definitely growing the best. They were the first in the ground, um, and yeah, but
2: because. Uh, Western Washington, you've got a different set of needs than what Jackie's growing in Prosser. For She's sure. got all the night shades, but you can do the brassicas. Yep, brassicas. Yeah, I think brassicas
4: will definitely be the mainstay in the night, in the coming years. Definitely, as we move, we're moving throughout the field with the crop rotation. But um, one one specific variety I'm really excited growing out, about growing next year is I didn't, that I didn't it wasn't able to get the seeds in time. Was uh, a a Paul, Paul Robeson tomato variety. Uh huh. That was something I was really looking forward to. Just that paul robeson has an interesting story behind him and the story behind that tomato variety was uh-huh. really are you going to tell us me. yeah <laughs> I, I, I don't know a little bit uh, most of it off the top of my head but yeah it was named after paul robeson i think he was a black activist black uh really black figure in black history mm-hmm. and spent some time actually in the soviet union just a, a really interesting character uh-huh. um and yeah i think it's i'm not sure yeah if it's related to the russian varieties but it should grow relatively well here for in our cooler climate Compared to other tomatoes. A lot
0: of the Russian varieties we're growing at our farm are uh, paste tomatoes. Yeah. You see a lot of that kind of thick, heavy mm-hmm. uh, tomato that when you put it into a pan, it literally melts into a sauce. They're, yeah, so, just, they're so rich. Chef Terry?
1: Yeah. Um, what about root vegetables? I mean, carrots, turnips, rutabagas, all that stuff seems to grow really well in Western Washington as well.
4: Definitely, definitely, yeah. I, something. Uh, one of the turnips I'm really excited about is. I'm sure it's the big craze. Is the like the, the, the Tokyo market turnips or yes. the Hokkaido turnips? Those are delicious. I love them. And just seeded some a few days ago, actually. So uh. looking looking forward to those coming up. They also, grow
0: as fast as radishes, almost. So yeah. they're they're a quick turnaround crop. Yep,
4: mm. radishes, turnips. Those are some of the brassica roots I have in right now. But we're also looking to grow a lot, a lot of beets, a lot of beets this year. We have a Detroit's Detroit uh, dark Red is our variety. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so I'm excited about those. I love beets. It's one of my favorite
0: vegetables. As me well.
2: me mm. too, and Tom doesn't like them yet, so we've got oh, to no. convince him of that. the value
0: of beets. I like beet greens more than I like beets. <laughs> but I also, uh, when Jackie leaves the beets in over winter mm. and picks them, say, in March or February... Uh, they are so sweet. They have yep. doubled in—I well, don't know if it's true scientifically, but they taste like they've doubled in sweetness, like the parsnips do and th- things of that nature. Mm. So. Yeah, I think, that
4: definitely—I think it does with with the frost, like the stress from the frost, definitely allows. Like I think I don't know the science specifically, but it allows like the sugars to mm-hmm. to really. really well, dry. It's,
1: it's basically all all the moisture is out and all the sugar is concentrated. That's why it tastes a little bit better. Huh. It's any any mm-hmm. vegetable that goes over winter, root vegetable. Even turnips, they get sweeter and so on and so forth, not as sweet as beet. Because
0: they dehydrate a little bit is what you're saying?
1: Yeah, they yeah. dehydrate. So they get, It's just like uh, you know potatoes, when you put them in storage, they're wet at the beginning. They have a lot of moisture, and then by, by January, February, they're just a pile of sugar. That's why they cook so fast, and that's why they brown so fast. Right,
0: right. Interesting. Uh, I know my, uh, Jackie picked a couple of totes of Tokyo turnips in there just about – Oh, they're smaller than a golf ball, and they have perfect little greens on them, so I cut the greens off and ate them separately because they do not cook as fast. But I I made kimchi out of all the turnips, Mm. and it should be ready this week. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm going to run a special down at Seatown with mackerel, broiled mackerel with kimchi turnips. And my guess is I'm going to sell... One, maybe one, <laughs> and no, uh, I'm gonna family
1: two. <laughs> two. I'm having
0: one. You're having one, and then we're probably gonna have to family meal the rest of it. So that'll be good for back house. Yeah. I'm sure they'll love that. What do you do? I mean, we only have 30 seconds. What do you do for family meal on the farm? Do you guys all you know how we always had yeah family meal at the restaurants? What do you do at the farm? Do you I get heard. them all together and sit down and eat together?
4: Yeah, or unfortunately not not yet. We're still we're still developing all the all the. Um, Community type infrastructure out there, so it's mostly just bring, a, bring, a, bring them, bring back from home. Unfortunately, or yeah. go to the PCC or go to the Hagens. But yeah.
0: Well, it's
3: been a pleasure uh, learning more about you guys, uh, Ray. Do you want to tell people how they can learn more about the Black Farmers Collective? Oh yes, thanks. Um, you know we have a web- website, blackfarmerscollective.com. Mm-hmm. you know, dot com. Um, you know, also if you want to email me, BlackFarmersCollective, all one word at Gmail. We certainly uh, respond to that. We're very excited to make more connections in the community, mm-hmm. get more folks involved. Um, so if folks want to wanna find out how they can support us uh, or just come out and visit the farm, bring the family, we'd love, we'd love to have you come. Sounds great. All right, hour number two is coming up, so don't go away. Brendan
0: McGill is going to be here. We've got lots more to do. Of course, we're going to finish up with Food for Thought, Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub With Love Spice Rubs. And uh, we'll see you soon. It's Cairo Radio, the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Let's get a great start off on our number two of the Hot Stove Society radio show. My name is Tom Douglas.
1: And I'm Terry Routierow, the chef in the hat.
0: We have been coming to you for many years here from the Hot Stove, and are excited that uh, we're opening for business again in person and also doing some outdoor classes at our warehouse in Ballard, 52nd and 14th Northwest. So look at the website and... uh, have some fun. Sign up for some classes. I did a grilling class last night. It was super fun. Uh, Chef Terry, we have our friend here, uh, Brendan McGill. is, is here from uh, Bainbridge Island. And uh, I say Bainbridge, but you're kind of all over the place. And uh, you've got a new business. Uh, you never sit still for long. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And uh, so tell us about your new kombucha. I will. Uh so or maybe you should tell us about you first and then your kombucha.
5: All right. Yeah. Um you know like as you said my name is Brendan and uh I own the Hitchcock Restaurant Group mm-hmm. uh which it's you know I would let, rattle off everything that it includes but that changes month by month. These right. days. So uh we're most mostly based on Bainbridge with a couple outposts in Seattle that we're looking forward to reopening sometime uh this uh in the next month or so. Um kombucha is uh Something that I sort of developed over uh, our various lockdowns this last winter. I've been brewing it at home since 2009, and it is, I think at first it was kind of this scary health food drink that you oh, find. Oh, I know. I, can't.
0: I mean, I walk by it every time in the grocery store.
5: Yeah, you know, um, and it's, it's, it's really popular. I mean, you know, we have our first uh, kombucha billionaire, the, the owner of, of Synergy. Um, you know, so it, it's, people are making it a large scale and drinking it a lot. I think folks are starting to understand the value of gut health, and um, a lot of people drank too much during quarantine. Um, you know, drank too much kombucha. Well, I drank a lot of kombucha, <laughs> but you know, the general benefits for your health of, of non-alcoholic beverages. I think that serious bar programs tend to focus more on these now, and if you're trying to live a, a, a healthy lifestyle in balance. That, um, you know, if every cocktail you might enjoy or a bottle of wine, there's appropriate times where you might want to have a delicious uh, probiotic sparkling beverage that tastes good mm-hmm. instead of like a, a soda. You know, um, I've been, for my own health reasons, avoiding refined carbohydrates and sugars for years mm-hmm. or kind of doling them out to myself like little cheat meals. Mm-hmm. And so um, having a, something like this around is so satisfying for me. And breaking some of the chef habits of uh, a couple of cold rainiers after an evening in the in the kitchen uh-huh. in front of a hot stove, uh, something like this I found to be maybe more satisfying. Like it, it, it satisfies what you're looking for with your cold beverage, but then you feel great and, and sleep well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So
0: let's go back to the beginning. And right. uh, so, how do you make kombucha? It's an ancient drink, if I'm not mistaken.
5: And so, how, how do you make it? It is, you know, all over the world, people found out how to ferment things in different ways, presumably by accident. Mm-hmm. Um, and a mm-hmm. lot of those were alcoholic fermentations. And the where kombucha came from is um, completely lost to history. I mean, they have the, some of the first places where it showed up consistently, but people think it's central China or uh, northern Tibet and... There's a, there's a colony, um, there's, a, there's a culture that's called the SCOBY. It's the uh, symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And so it's this happy beneficial bacterium that converts sugars into acetic enzymes and CO2 and alcohol. Uh, sorry, the yeast does what it always does and converts the sugars alcohol. into the alcohol and CO2. And then the beneficial bacteria that lives in this uh, symbiotic colony with the yeast converts the alcohol. It's called ethanol metabolism. Mm-hmm. It eats the alcohol, and it and then that turns into acetic enzymes and lots of other vitamins um, and probiotics. And it's alive. It's alive. I'm alive! I'm alive. Yeah. So it creates this kind of like cellulose raft that is the mother that you're talking about. That it big, scares me. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think it's like a mushroom or something, uh-huh. like a fungus, but... Uh-huh. That, the actual description doesn't sound much more attractive than a fungus, I suppose. <laughs> and we put fungus in this. This has a couple different types of raw wild mushrooms that have macerated into it as well for their health benefits. Right. But the, this, That's complicated sounding, but the basis is very simple. You make sweet tea. We make ours with uh, raw honey. Mm-hmm. And then you add um, a measure of the starter, like finished kombucha, and then the, the SCOBY, the colony of bacteria and yeast, and that converts it into the, the beverage that you, you have now.
0: So the SCOBY, I didn't realize, was is it somewhat of an inoculation
5: into your... It is. You know, you're, you're going to start with sweet tea. Okay. Um, and that's
0: much... just black tea, right? With sugar? So I, I mean, with honey.
5: It, black tea with sugar is the traditional kombucha. We make what's called the jun or June style kombucha, hence the name June bug. And when I started doing this, I was um, quarantined and sort of hiding out on Maui during the, the deep part of the... Um, Pandemic, and I had a neighbor who had a, a apiary and bees, and I could just walk a hundred yards down the lane and get beautiful, um, uh, you know, raw honey. Right. And so that kind of informed the style that I made, and uh, I like the simplicity of I can get an organic uh, Japanese green tea and some wild honey from a friend, local farmer, uh, buying cane sugar refined as it is to make a drink that's supposed to be so beneficial to your health always mm-hmm. feels a little strange to me mm-hmm. so that's all there is to it mm. uh and then you're going to add some of the starter which is active to bring the ph down just like most fermentations you inoculate with usually some of your old finished product to kick right. it off mm-hmm. and then you mm. float that little raft on top which um you know h- houses more of the beneficial bacteria and yeast Do and- you have to buy that somewhere Uh, You know, it used to be, like, hit up your your friendly neighborhood hippie. Right. And the thing about it is it just makes more of itself. Okay. Every generation of kombucha, the raft duplicates um, or replicates. So, scaling up, you know, we basically, every batch of finished kombucha could be starter for eight to ten times as much kombucha as you just made. Okay. And you can double it on every generation with your with your scoby
0: alright so then uh, we only have a minute left in this segment uh, how do people find your, your kombucha and uh, w- you know where it's being sold
5: at alright so uh, right now we're selling it at our uh, Cafe Hitchcock on Bainbridge Island and we're going to bring it downtown to our Cafe Hitchcock and uh, the forthcoming Junebug uh, Cafe there uh, at the Exchange Building in Marion uh, we just got our first wholesale account at Evergreen Pizza in Bremerton our friend Chef Manu Alfau uh-huh. has it on tap there and you can also get it at our Pizzeria Bruchato
0: Crazy, man. Crazy. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm, That's uh, awesome. It's, you know, what a great you. story.
5: Yeah, you know, um, with, with this, what we decided to do, instead of making it feel like health food and, and have lots of twigs and, uh, and, and get, you know, the hippie stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Usually you see this stuff made with, like, rose hips and turmeric, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, we're trying to do, like, friendly flavors that just taste great, you know? So, like, root beer and raspberry, and it's like pop, but mm-hmm. without, all the, without all the sugar, and it's great for you. That'll be And some live bacteria to boot. That's right. All right, when we come back, let's talk about
0: Bainbridge Island. I made my first foray over there uh, maybe, what, a month or two ago and played some golf at Wing Point Golf Club. Nice. Uh, So uh, looking forward to hearing about what's happening on the aisle. When we come back, it's the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio 97. 3FM. We are back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo Radio. Chef uh, Terry, your chapeau is looking finely starched today.
1: Finally starched. I like it. It must be Friday. That's why. It must be. Nice to be here, Tom.
0: Yep, absolutely good to see you. I hope you've been spending some time in your garden and that uh, oh, you, yes. you can get out of your, your self-appointed quarantine sooner than later and get back down here and join us in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove.
1: Uh, looking forward to that.
0: Uh, we have another segment here with Brendan McGill. And this time we would like to concentrate a little bit uh, past the kombucha and back onto Bainbridge Island on all the cool things that are happening. I think Bainbridge, in a funny way, has been rediscovered because of staycations and people not being able to go anywhere else. And so uh, when I was over there, it was jam-packed a month and a half ago or so, and I ate at a couple of restaurants. Yours happened to be closed the day I was there, uh, but... um, uh, I ended up at Proc- uh, proper fish. Oh, that's had some great! Nice little fish and chips, and one of my old bakers from Cafe Sport days, oh, uh, yeah. uh, Jeff. Um, Jeff and Mary Lean, but Mary Lean, but it was her ex-husband. Anyway, mm-hmm. he was one of our bakers at Cafe Sport days, and was has the Blackbird Bakery oh, that's there. Right. Yeah, Jeff and Heidi. Jeff and Heidi now, oh. yeah. And uh, it was just I lived over there for a few months of my life, uh, maybe a year and a half. Back in the late 70s, when I first moved here, I was was chefing at a restaurant called The Second Landing in the Winslow Mall. Nice. And uh, my friends that own Napoleon Food Products had the Martinique Restaurant. So we used to kind of hang out there. And later came the Streamliner Diner. There's just a lot going on. And then when you came into view, um, many moons later, by the way, you youngster, uh, when you came into view, you kind of changed the scene over
5: there and made it uh, really a dining destination. It was it was good timing to open a little farm to table restaurant in uh, like a what seemed like an agricultural community, and just I watched the I think that trend in dining as well as island dining for Seattleites, um, and just the rise of Bainbridge um, it kind of all happened at the same time over the last ten years that I've been there, yeah.
0: And so tell us about it. what's happening. If people were to get on the ferry, let's say you have a foot traffic on the ferry, and get off and walk up in the town, walk which on is walk easy off. to do. Yeah, that's the uh, What would you tell them to do?
5: Give them a little tour of the island and end of your joints. Of course. Well, uh, you know, we have um, Pizzeria Bruchato, which is our Neapolitan-style pizzeria. It's open for lunch and dinner and hours in between. And that's a lot of fun. That's our big, active, energetic spot. Uh, now we have the bar back open, which mm-hmm. feels great. Uh, we recently reopened our deli and adjoining bar as the newly rebranded cafe Hitchcock, which is an all day cafe where you can sort of have like anything appropriately for the right time of day that mm-hmm. you come by
0: mm-hmm.
5: um, and then our our flagship Hitchcock we had reopened as a burger joint, um, and we 've been running it as such but i 've got something up my sleeve for that one next, which you know we 'll we'll tell you about next time right
0: always kind of reinventing yourself.
5: Well, you know, you have to, you know. I mean, uh, the takeout didn't work for chef tasting menu type mm-hmm. food. So, you know, a sack of burgers walks out well, mm-hmm. and I'm watching people picnic with that and have fun and enjoy it. But we've got our dining back now, and I, I want to put, I want to do some chefy stuff. Right. So, you know, our team is kind of huddling around and, and figuring out what that'll look like next. But there are, there's wonderful places to eat. You can take food out, you can take cocktails out now, which right. is cool, and uh, just like, find a waterfront park. The water's warm check the tides, um, you know, take a swim. Uh, Bainbridge is beautiful. Bring your bicycle.
0: Yeah, I, I, there were so many businesses. You, I, I want to say I was there on a Tuesday, possibly, and yeah. you, you were closed. Right. Is that
5: right? It's so, hard to be open seven days a week these days.
0: I know. It's hard to find staff, for sure. Uh, but there was still a lot going on in the neighborhood, and uh, you – when you say you are open all day parts
5: because that's when people visit all all that's throughout right. the day the ferry runs all day all night right so yeah 3 or 4 p.m. is a is a peak time and we saw a lot more uh, regional tourists i think this spring than it wasn't like wait for the cruise lines to show up mm-hmm. until you really started seeing the humans People couldn't wait to get out of the city, get out of their houses. And I think there's this feeling that they're on the island. And so it's like and there's no there's there's no COVID. On there's the no region.
6: COVID on the island. Well, inside. and, you know,
5: I mean, statistically, there has been very little of that going on. So, you know, you can space out from each other easily. Mm-hmm. You can take a walk in a forest. None of these things require none of these things make social distancing painful or difficult. Right. right. So, you know, we've we've been enjoying that. Chef Terry.
1: Yeah, Brandon, I've said that to anybody who wanted to listen uh, for many, many years about, you know, we're coming to Seattle, you know, besides going to your restaurant, what should we do? And I said, well, if you come to Seattle, is one thing you must do. You must take the ferry from downtown, go to Banbridge, spend hours there, and then come back and watch the sunset flying onto, over the city. You know? And I said, that's breathtaking. The whole trip is breathtaking. So it you costs- have nothing but a lot of fun.
5: Uh, th- yeah, yeah, and I you. still
1: believe that in a C- as a Seattleite, you grab the ferry, you go to Bainbridge and spend the day there and come back. It's beautiful. You won't even know you're in Seattle.
5: Some of the best experiences I'd heard from visitors was like they're in the market. It's, it's you know four 4.30. They see the boat coming in, impulsively go jump on it, have dinner, walk around, sunset cruise on the way back. Uh, you know, and you're back in time to like, have, you know, go to a bar or something. And honestly,
0: you don't even have to get off the boat. It's still a great hour ride back and forth, uh, hour and fifteen or so uh, back and forth to Bainbridge. Uh, but yeah. you should yeah, get, get off there. the boat. You should get off the boat. I know. I'm not saying that. Uh, but you can, if you were to uh,
5: want a pub hop or maybe a beer crawl around yep. the island there, where, what kind of places would you suggest? Bainbridge Brewing is excellent, and they have a, a little alehouse that's probably the first stop you'd, you'd hit when you walk off the boat on the way to um, right past the, the art museum there, Bima. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a, a wine tasting room right next door as well. There's several in Winslow between uh, Fletcher Bay Winery, Amelia Wynn, Eagle Harbor Winery. Right. Um, so the, uh, and Eleven Winery is also has a tasting room there. So if you want to drink some wine, mm-hmm. go for it. Uh, Bainbridge Island Vineyards is great. Uh, they're out on the farm where they grow their grapes off a of day road. Uh-huh. So that might be a bike ride. You know, it's a few miles up. But it's one of the only Puget Sound area wineries. It's like a estate winery. Oh, really? Yeah. I Interesting. Mean, yeah. Draft horse.
1: You also have uh, the beautiful ice cream parlor there.
5: We do yeah, more of you... uh, the famous morons. Yes. Yeah. Uh, people Very love that Very
1: delicious place. ice
5: cream. We had her on the show here maybe 15
0: years ago, that Mora ice cream yeah. parlor. I think they were opening here in Seattle at the time also, and then that one didn't go. But the, the, I saw the one on Bainbridge was, is still open. You know, when I worked on Bainbridge in 1979, uh, I was the chef at a restaurant called The Second Landing. And um, I used to, honest to God, I, some for some reason, rented a house. I didn't have a car. I rented a house on... Suquamish Road, you know, uh, Sandy Hook Road out there oh, right. over the Agate Pass Bridge. Uh-huh. And I used to thumb in in the morning and thumb out when I, my, my shift was done at night. Nice. And half the time I would walk because I was a big dude and people wouldn't pick me up in the dark. But right. once they got to know me in Bainbridge, they would come sit at the counter at the restaurant. And then those people, my customers, would actually give me a ride home and give me a ride to work in the morning.
5: It's that kind of place. Yeah. I've been taking our guests after their meals to the ferry from Hitchcock for 10 years. Yeah, you know? yeah. And sometimes I'll take off my chef coat and throw on a hoodie, and they'll just figure where I'm a, like a driver associated. Right. I'll, I'll get to hear how they enjoyed their meal. It's candidly. That's really funny. It's a friendly spot. Yeah. I've, I've noticed a little bit of that when I'm shucking oysters
0: uh, down in the market. I'm on the sidewalk, and I'm uh-huh. in my mask and my hat and my right. glasses, and nobody knows who I am. And I can hear them talk about me at the table next door, and so far it's been good. <laughs> <laughs> so far I haven't gotten trashed yeah.
1: too much. Well, what did you say?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Our, our, fr- our guest has been uh, Brendan McGill of Hitchcock Restaurant Group uh, over on Bainbridge and a couple in Seattle ready to reopen. That's right. Uh, looking forward. Try his new kombucha if you get to his... Uh, kombucha cafe uh and uh, go on from there support him he's a good dude uh, when we come back it is time for duck confit we're going to hear from the master on how to make a real true confit and it's not greasy on cairo radio 97 3 fm We are back in the Hot Stove Kitchen on Cairo Radio. My name is Tom Douglas, owner of a couple of uh, nice joints around town, including Sea town down there in the Pike Place Market, which is really kind of an amalgamation of Sea town the Rub Shack, and Edda's all into one. Great outdoor dining and uh, serious takeout out in Ballard. And, of course, uh, we're right here at the Hot Stove. The brand-new, Chef Terry, the brand-new uh, Dahlia Bakery is open right behind us, across the street from us, and I, I th- should say.
1: And I can't wait to try those breakfast sandwich again.
0: Yeah, they're good.
1: Oh, I know they're hot. They're (laughs) delicious. Uh, Uh, I'm Kevin Rochereau, the chef in a hat, owner of Luc in Madison Valley, and uh, looking forward to seeing you in the next month and a half because that's how much time we got left there.
0: Exactly. Uh, Chef, this segment is all about you. We're going to talk a little bit about confit, and and sometimes we think about confit as being more of a winter dish, but I love it with fresh new potatoes that are pan-fried in duck fat, fresh peas, things like that. Um, As a young chef, we uh, are always taught how to do confit, but it's not necessarily, I wouldn't think, the way you were taught how to do it. And then I would also say that um, it has become so popular, oddly, because we don't need the confit anymore, right? Confit was a preservation method uh, that was out of necessity. Now we do it for for a a texture and flavor profile.
1: Right. It was started as an idea of, you know, in the fall, you would take the, all the ducks and the geese and you would obviously kill them and you would do the liver into a foie gras and so on and so forth. And the leg were cooked very gently in, in duck fat, very slowly, until they were totally falling off, the, almost falling off the bone. And then they would be kept cold in that fat into an urn over the winter. And that's how you would conserve them, the fat of the duck fat being on top, we basically stopped the, um, the air to go through and to conserve the duck leg. Right. And then it was also done with other birds, other legs of other birds. Um, and then as the modern time comes in, you're right, Tom, we don't need to do that because we have refrigeration. We have all this stuff that allows us to not have to do that anymore. So now we use it for many different things. And, and um, as you mentioned, potatoes, vegetables in general – are so delicious confit. The first thing that comes to mind for me is fennel bulb. You take them, you cut them in half, and you cook them gently in olive oil. Um, Instead of using an animal fat, you use an olive oil and uh, fresh herbs, uh, lemon verbena, uh, many different kinds of herbs, bay leaf, thyme. Put that in there and cook it very gently for three, four hours until the fennel is totally absorbing the olive oil Um, Into it, basically, it becomes almost soaked with olive oil. It
0: looks a little translucent, right?
1: Correct. It becomes translucent, and it's got that olive oil coating and flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, I've done it also where the fennel bulb, I would take them the day before and use it just like a confit where I would take salt and bay leaf, a little bit of sugar, and put them on top of the fennel to tenderize the fennel completely Mm -hmm. overnight. Then the next day, I would rinse off the salt. And I would put that into, dry, dry it really well and put it in olive oil and cook it that way. And it doesn't take quite as long to cook, but it's also super, super tender to the, to the teeth. And uh, you use that next to a piece of fish or on a salad with some goat cheese or some sheep cheese. It's absolutely fantastic and delicious. Let's uh, let's go back to
0: duck a little bit, though, because I think that's where people's fascination comes in. And there's a big misnomer. And I think people read a recipe and they say, cook it in fat. And then they just think, oh, my God, that's too fatty for me. That's too greasy for me, all this kind of stuff. And uh, if you you do duck confit correctly, where you cure the, the bird for a day with herbs and spices and stuff, and then you cook it gently in the fat, it is no more fatty than what it would be, anything would be normally, right? It doesn't, it's not like it yeah, absorbs no, the fat. It actually is just kind of almost like a sous vide, right? It's just kind of slow, Correct. slow boiled in the fat. And that's where sous vide, I would guess, came from is that right. kind of that slow cookie. It's
1: not, it's not any different than frying a potato. When you fry a potato, it's not like your potato is imbibed with oil in the middle. You know, you still, you have the outside that's crispy. And that's what the oil does. It creates a little bit of a skin kind of protection kind of things to the meat. But the curing that you've done the day before with the salt and the sugar or the salt, sorry, salt spices, peppercorn, all kind of different spice in there. And you leave that overnight. That is what actually opens up the meat and tenderize the meat clearly mm-hmm. because you, you do confit on pieces of meat that have a lot of fibers and muscles in it. So... You're basically trying to tenderize it at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that curing is what does the job. You rinse it off really well on the cold water, and then you pat it super dry, and then you cook it gently into that duck fat. That duck fat is not staying into the duck leg once it's cooked because you take you c- to, to store it, you keep it in the fat. But then once you warm it up, you take the duck leg out. That fat comes out.
0: It renders off. So I think the point is if you cook a if you cook duck legs in a quart of duck fat when you're done cooking you still have a quart of duck fat.
1: Correct. Correct. You not the point. it's not like you're going to drink a quart of duck fat right. at all, not even close. And and that's also why it works so well with vegetable, tomatoes, fennel, all kind of potatoes, all kind of different things. It works really well that way because it does exactly the same thing. It cooks it slowly, tenderizes it. But it does not imbibe the vegetable with that oil, Right. if that makes any sense.
0: Okay, so now so we've, bought, uh, we've bought some commercial duck confit at the grocery store. You can find it now. Maple Leaf Farms makes some. There's some from uh, all over the so place, D'Artagnan. honestly. Yeah, D'Artagnan. Uh, so now they've got it home. How do you like to finish that product uh, and then serve it?
1: So one of my favorite ways to do it, usually if a duck confit has been done on a very, very slow pace, the skin is actually not crispy. Right, it's It's intact though. It's just white, fatty, kind of crispy skin. What I like to do is to take a pan and crisp up that skin. Mm -hmm. I like to first put my leg in the oven, bring it to a a nice warm temperature, like, you know, 350 for about 5, 7, 10 minutes, so the leg becomes really nice and warm. And then I take a saute pan, like a cast iron, on top of the stove, and I want to sear that skin.
0: On medium heat.
1: uh, medium to yeah, medium to a high heat. Because you ha- you have
0: to you can't go too hot or you're going to burn before you finish rendering.
1: Correct. You don't want to go super hot, no. no. But you want to go medium heat for sure. And you you want to put that skin down and you want to leave it alone for a few minutes so it can crisp up, just like you would um, a chicharron or whatever. You mm-hmm. want to make sure that skin is crispy, and be- that's what I'm looking for in a, in a good duck confit. The skin should be crispy, and then the inside is. Usually pure meat. You don't want to do that on that side because that meat is already cooked tender. You just want to give it a quick flip on that side for maybe 10 seconds and then take it out because you're not trying to crisp up the meat. Because then that would become dry meat.
0: So you're crispening up the skin side, and when you put it into your medium to medium hot pan, you kind of have to let it sit there for a minute or two, or else when you try to turn it, you're going to leave the skin. Yeah, you're going to leave the skin on the bottom of the pan, and now you've ruined the whole presentation. So you you have to kind of be trusting that you're crisping the skin, and just keep an eye on it, but don't move it around. It gets sticky. Yeah, and it has collagen in it, so it wants to stick.
1: Don't be afraid to transfer a little bit of the fat with it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it will help not stick, and it will also help crisp up the skin much better. So okay, anyway, So now my what? my advice. And then, then you can take that leg and you can serve it as a side dish with like what we do at Luke. We serve it as a cassoulet. So we have a, a bean stew. We have a, a sausage that goes with it, a po- mild pork sausage that goes with it, and we use that in a cassoulet. Or you could also take the leg and you could shred it uh, you could just basically take the meat off the bone, and then put that on top of a frisée salad or whatever. Like you, if you would do a mayonnaise or just a, a nice little arugula frisée, and you know some nice hearty green. Put the crisp the the pieces of duck right on top of that. Crumble some goat cheese or some sheep cheese right on top of that, and bingo bingo, you've got a wonderful <laughs> duck confit salad.
0: Bingo bango, there's a French term for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Is that not an English term? <laughs> <You laughs> is that not something people say?
0: <laughs> it is one of my favorite dishes, and it also just makes me nuts because people don't understand it, right? They just think of duck as being fatty, and it really doesn't yeah, have to be. If it's cooked properly, trimmed properly when it's, after it's roasted, confit yeah. properly, uh, uh, there's just uh, there's no reason it has to be this greasy thing. What it needs to be is luscious
1: and delicious. And another big note on that fat. That fat can stay on your counter for days, days and days. Have it next to you in a little cup, you know, and just keep the rest in the fridge. But have a little cup next to you so when you cook, instead of using a, an, a, an oil that's going to destroy itself when it gets hot, like if you're searing a steak or you're searing a, anything you want to sear, just drop that little dark fat in there. It will be resistance to high heat, and it will give you a beautiful crisp. And not lo- not only that. It will give you a good flavor. good flavor. A good
0: umami <laughs> kind of quality. Yeah. Don't you think? Carrots, Don't you think?
1: Potatoes, anything you want to rissole, it's it's a beautiful thing to do with that. So. Exactly.
0: Okay, up next, it's the Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. Uh, we're looking forward to having you hang with us through the end of the show. On Cairo, it's the Hot Stove Society 97.3 FM. We are back in the hot stove kitchen. It's time for the Rub With Love Tasty Trivia Challenge. Rub With Love is a small batch made right in my own warehouse in Ballard. Versatile. are sauces and mustards to go along with them. They bring extra layers of flavor to any meal. Look for them in your local grocery store. We're in the Met Markets, Ballard Markets, QFCs, PCCs. Uh, you name it, we're pretty much out and about. And, of course, uh, specialty shops, butcher shops, or find them online at uh, your buddy Stan or Tom. Douglas.com, or you can find them most anywhere. 5,000 retail shops around our lovely country. Pamela is going to tell us how we play the game. We have a special guest today who who used to produce the radio show and used to really relish taking me down. But today she is going to play with Sean. Uh, as our third contestant today, and we're going to take you down today, oh, Missy. Really? Oh. Even though there's even though there's two of you, uh, we're going to take <laughs> Sean now. and Amy Richardson, our former producer, down. So, uh, Terry, uh, don't mess up.
1: I'm trying to uh, concentrate strongly here because this is going to be a challenge. Yeah, and it's a
2: tough one today. So let's get started. Each group of contestants is going to get five questions. Uh, the loser has to pay the shipping of this week's prize of mixed rubs to our winner Dan Hams who chimed in and said he learned he loved learning about small farming and equity in farming increasing in Washington state. Thank you Dan. Let's begin. Terry, okay. you like to go first. Go ahead. In order to make 1 kilogram of honey, how, that's cool, because we just talked about honey with Brent.
0: <laughs> How many flowers does a bee have to visit? Oh, my goodness. 2.2 2 pounds of honey.
1: Hmm. Wait. Are you, you going to give them any sort of round yeah,
0: number? A, number? Like a, It's a big number. Um, is it over a million or less say, than a million? I would it's
1: say a, one billion.
0: That's pretty close. Four million. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I think a, you win that point, Jeff. That's, that's a, a very bu- busy Very busy bee. <laughs>
1: Um, There's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between Chef, million and one. Chef, don't don't <laughs> get caught up in
0: technicality, if, Chef. We, we gave, gave it, uh, it to uh, you.
1: Especially uh. if it's your saving accounts.
2: <laughs> Number two. Why is wine sold in tinted bottles?
1: Um, because light affects the uh, quality of the wine. It will actually deteriorate the wine.
2: Winner, winner. Number three. How many snails are consumed on an annual basis worldwide?
1: <laughs> those, those questions are so funny because who the hell would ever come up right on that question? No one. Okay, uh, let me guess. You were so. How many that's sna-
6: the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's the answer we were looking for. No. <laughs>
1: um, I'm going to say six million.
2: Uh, not as close <laughs> as the first one. Annual worldwide, <laughs> people eat about a billion snails. Oh, Tom's
6: trying
2: trying to look up the answer. Um, Number four, is it true that alcoholic beverages have some necessary minerals?
1: Well, some of them do, yes, absolutely.
2: Yes, you're right. Um, All 13 minerals necessary to humans can be found in alcoholic beverages, so let's keep up the wine consumption.
0: There you go. What does that make them now, three three out of four?
2: Yeah. And... uh, Ketchup in the 19th century was used as a cure for diarrhea. True or false?
0: True. True. Oh, you are. Well, Terry hates ketchup, so that's... uh...
1: (laughs) I would think it would be the reason why, and then you eat more. I was going to say, it
0: kind of sounds like you're going the other direction with
1: it. Four out of five. Now
2: it's time for Amy and Sean.
0: All right. right. So, Pamela, I don't know if you know, but if you have some harder questions, it would be really nice to g- give them to Ms. Richardson, uh, yeah. who tortured Terry and I for a while on this show. It's
2: fun. Yeah. It's fun.
0: We like multiple
2: choice. Yeah. Okay, we're going to start with an easy one. It is believed that tea was accidentally discovered by a Chinese emperor in 2737 B.C. when the wind brought the leaves into a pot of boiling
6: water. True or fault. Uh, I'm leaning towards true because it seems like a, too specific of a story to be false. What are you thinking?
1: Let's go with true.
0: It is true. All right.
1: Now that's gonna be a nice advertising story again. Man, <laughs>
0: yeah, that was a luck of that was a pot of gold,
1: yeah.
2: so to speak. All right. <laughs> Who eats more meat? Americans
6: or Europeans? I want to say Americans. Yeah, uh, based
2: on, gut
0: reaction. If yeah. you've ever spent any time in uh, in Alba, the little town in in Italy in Piemonte, and watched them chow down on crudo, uh, carne crudo, uh, you might think again. They
4: might be like smaller portions, though.
0: Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's trying, trying to trick like you. Buffet. He's trying
6: to oh, trick. Yeah. I know. I feel yeah. like you feel solid with America. I do. Let's do
2: it. Yes, Americans eat twice as much meat than the Europeans, Ooh. more than fifty pounds a year. Ah.
1: Ah. Oh. <laughs>
0: Uh, I've been to your house. You eat plenty of meat. I do.
2: <laughs> do the French export more champagne or drink more champagne? Mm. Export?
6: I'm going to say, yeah, export, I think. Yeah. I feel good about it. All
2: right. No. Nope. shaking her head. No. no. Exactly. They
1: drink more champagne. Exactly. That's impressive.
2: That's impressive. The French export 140 million bottles of champagne. But for local use, they produce an additional 180
0: million bottles. Ooh. Wow, I would never have gotten that question <laughs> yeah. right. I nice thought England drank job. the most champagne.
1: Terry knew. Oh, French yeah. people are no, cool. Yeah, French, <laughs> no, French people are the only ones who always think about, for anything, any excuse, you open the bubble.
2: Mm. Yeah. 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 I love that. That's yeah.
1: good. It's very much part of the culture.
2: Um, what vegetable can you eat to help prevent night blindness? Night blindness?
1: Carrots, blinds? have you ever seen a, uh, carrots, ever carrots seen a rabbit good any, eyes.
6: Anything? <laughs> hey, Chef, keep it to uh, yourself. This is our adversaries. <laughs> well, yeah. Amy, you were saying carrots are good for the carrots eyes. Carrots are good for the eyes. I, I feel good about that.
2: And Terry said that, too. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to suggest carrots.
6: We got night, our ringer, Terry.
2: Night Thank vision. you, Terry.
6: <laughs> In fact, said, it is said, carrots. have you ever seen a rabbit wearing glasses? Uh,
0: we, yeah.
2: <laughs> I've never seen a rabbit wearing glasses.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen a carrot look like night vision goggles, either. Yes.
2: Uh, (laughs) And um, for your finale, onions, apples, and potatoes have the same taste. What sense is responsible for humans to be
6: able to tell the difference? (laughs) So we're looking for one of the senses, one of the five senses that we have? Yes. Is it smell? Yeah. It can't be hearing. All right.
2: So oh, are we tied for it's so weird? You're tied. That is a weird question. I love that one though. I do. Too. I want to try eating all three of them without smelling yeah. them. Yeah, I also just love Tom's face right now. Yeah. <laughs> he is awesome. Uh, Tom, can't wait. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Does? We'll start with a super easy one. Okay. Does corn always have an odd number of grains? Yes. Correct. Uh, what food can be used to get rid of hiccups? Cucumbers. No. Swallowing one teaspoon of sugar without liquids gets rid of
0: hiccups. Well, then you have to invite Mary Poppins over, and I'm not doing it. <laughs> no. He's tied one for
1: <laughs> one. some medicine go down.
2: In what country are termites and ants roasted and eaten like popcorn?
0: Uh, Mexico. South Africa. Same, I mean... Different continents, but there's both south, <laughs> south of us. Uh-oh. Uh, why does milk help you eat spicy food? Because uh, it comes from uh, cows and sheep, and they love spicy grass.
2: <laughs> He's going down, kids. It's, it's, it's ugly today. Milk helps you eat spicy foods because capsicum, a compound in chili peppers, is fat-soluble. Oh, ah, well, there yeah. you go. Who knew? you (laughs) Um, what is the white film sometimes found on chocolate
0: um well if you see it just don't eat it it's terribly poisonous and uh it is called it is called it's like a type of mold that they make penicillin out of
2: (laughs) oh it is (laughs) the cocoa butter and it's called a fat
0: loom you would never know i was an investor in uh, (laughs) In Theo chocolate Chocolate. (laughs) you just did us wrong buddy um (laughs) if you want to be part of the show and get trounced like i just did you can uh, call us and uh, beg for mercy (laughs) i would gladly give you the job yes exactly Uh, you can join our facebook uh, community on facebook live at hot stove society radio show if you want to uh, continue listening, you can go to Cairo 97.3 FM, listen terrestrially, or you can download from your favorite podcast app. This show is produced by Pam Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Doctore. And also remember, if you miss any episode of Hot Stove Society Show in Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app.
1: Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend.